week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1990, Paul Kimmage's book A Rough Ride was nominated for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award. Kimmage was an Irish professional cyclist who rode with the RMO and Fagor teams in the 1980s. He was also Irish road race champion in 1981, but having grown increasingly disgruntled with the doping which was pervading his sport, he retired from professional cycling to take up a career in journalism. He subsequently wrote the book A Rough Ride, which provided details of the doping practices which went on in the peloton during his racing days. Kimmage had broken the code of Omerta and was lambasted by many for his willingness to speak openly about the sport's increasingly apparent doping problems. His compatriot Stephen Roach was one of those who was unhappy with the contents of the book. He said, I believe the impression he has given is unfair because it has left Sean Kelly and myself as the top Irish riders carrying the can as far as allegations of drug use are concerned. I don't think it's anyone's business if I have taken amphetamines or anything else. If I denied it, no one would believe me. And if I said yes, I do, everyone would think I'm a drug user. You have to realise the top riders like me face drug controls far more often than domestiques like Paul Kimmage. There's a 99% chance of me getting tested and only an outside chance of a rider like Paul getting done. Kimmage went on to become an award-winning journalist and regularly wrote about cycling and was unwavering in his anti-doping stance. As every one of cycling's subsequent scandals unfolded, Festina, Puerto, Landis and Armstrong, Kimmage has become more and more vindicated in his efforts to expose the sport and all of its demons. Now, Kimmage is being personally sued by Pat McQuaid and Hein Verbruggen due to an article which the accusers say Kimmage made false accusations that defamed the UCI and its presidents and which tarnished their integrity and reputation. The court case is set to be heard in Switzerland on December 12th this year. This week in cycling, it's amazing given that you said a report has come out this week that uh, your close personal friend, Paul Kimmage, actually has a highlight that we can talk about. <laughs> I've actually bent the truth a little bit here. It was it was just it was the first week in November that, that he got nominated for this award, but I've I've stuck it in this week anyway. Just, just nobody nobody will realise. Uh, we'll just keep quiet about it and pretend it was this week anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody cares. <laughs> but um. Yeah, it, it's a coincidence as well that um, just a, a kind of a strange set of circumstances led me to, I was actually, um, I went out for a meal with Paul Kimmage on uh, Thursday, <laughs> which was the day after the USADA report came out. And um, I was just, it was inc- incredible to sit beside him and, and hear him speak. He's, he's uh, like, he, he um, you'd think he'd be sick of talking about Armstrong and the UCI and doping in general you, you know you'd think that's what everybody asks him about and you, you know you'd think that he'd sit, he'd be sick of talking about it but he just talked with such passion and and um, you know he, he really um, he really it, it's hard to get across how much he cares about this you know and you know I, I've seen it labeled Adam that he hates cycling you know how can anybody that loves cycling do what he does but he yeah. loves cycling you know make no mistake about it he loves this sport and uh, it, it, it's um it's tragic that the, the the sport and by the sport i mean the uci has turned against him for for what he has tried to do over the years and and like i said in the piece you know you know maybe, maybe in 1990 when the book came out uh, or, or or even in the preceding 10 years you, you know um it was easy to to you know to say that he had spat in the soup and uh, and all of that but you know it, it's undeniable it's absolutely undeniable that you know that everything he has written and everything he has 
worked towards for for most of his life for all of his journalistic life is absolutely true uh, and you know i don't think anybody who who is informed and intelligent can deny that now and uh, i i i really really hope that everything works out well for him because it's really tragic that it's coming I tell you what's really now. interesting to me i mean we're carrying on a great velocast tradition by chatting before the show and wasting podcast gold but um you know, the phrase that you used before we started recording was you'd never come across a man where you'd been so struck by his integrity. And for people trying to talk him down and for the UCI taking him to court, that's a phrase we should bear in mind. You know, this is a man who's passionate about the sport that we love. And, you know, the integrity that struck you is now being vindicated in every single fact that comes out. Uh, absolutely. And, and, like, he spoke about... Um, you, you know, guys like Christophe Basson and, um, you know, the, the the women that were involved in this, Emma O'Reilly and Betsy Andreu and, and their integrity and, and uh, you know, he the respect that he has for those people, you know, is massive. He, you know, he went so far as to say that Christophe Basson, out of all of the, the people involved in this, is his hero, mm-hmm. you know. But, but like, you know... I, I think what Paul Kimmage did isn't that far removed from what Christophe Basson did, you know? Uh, and, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people that, that look at Paul Kimmage now as a as a hero, and and rightly so, uh, uh, the, the, the same way that he looks at Christophe Basson, you know? And uh, he, he struck me as quite a humble man as well, so I, I, I'm not sure how comfortable he would be with being labelled a hero for, for, for what he's done, but um, I'm sure he is for, for a lot of people. And... Um, you know, it's uh, it's just again. I just think it's really sad that he has he he has to deal with this. One of the it's things terrible. that really interests me, and I've been talking about this all week on Twitter, and you know, talking to Scott and and various other people, is what this has highlighted for me is the difference. And I, I, this is a quote that I got from someone on Twitter, and as usual, I can't remember who it was, but whoever you were, thank you, because it, it really crystallised what was happening in my head is there's a big difference between sports writers and sports journalists. Because sports journalists care about what's true. Kimmage, Walsh, you know, Ballister in France, these kind of guys. Whereas sports writers like, um, I think Wilkinson put out, put out a, a frankly embarrassing piece this week. You know, they, they knew what was going on. They knew what was going on and they just shut up. And... You can say oh, it was to save their jobs, and that would hold some water if we hadn't had brave people like Walsh and Kimmage and Ballister et al, who actually had the courage to speak up when they saw the sport that they, you know, they professed to love, just being damaged and, and essentially polluted. Absolutely, and, and like I think up until now, maybe these these guys like Wilcoxon could hide behind um, the. the, the you know, maybe they could hide behind the um, the approach that they didn't they didn't know about it, but they didn't ask about it. You know, and 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 maybe maybe if they had have asked more questions, they might have found out. But I I don't know whether you read an article recently by Andy Sutcliffe. He he was the the editor of Cycling Weekly for about mm-hmm. ten years, I think, eight years maybe. And I think he was the editor of Cycle Sport as well when it first when it first hit the shelves. But he he said or not like absolutely explicitly that he was aware of this problem and he was warned by race organisers and uh, cyclists themselves not not to print this stuff. You know he was yeah. threatened, 
and you know when you when you hear that it's just it, it's it's impossible to 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 forgive and forget what the likes of Wilcoxon were 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 writing and were privy to at the time but i i mu- i must i i, I you, you know we spoke last week and I, and i kind of i tried to uh, get across the difference between cycling journalists and mm-hmm. sports journalists and uh, maybe i'll just quickly go over it again in case anybody wasn't listening last week it's that you know cycling journalists this is this is their this is their life they have to write about cycling they're in press conferences and you know absolutely wrongly but if they were if they asked you know awkward questions they may get blacklisted and not invited to the press conference so you know that's a terrible thing that 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 was allowed to happen but it did happen and it, you know sports journalists like image could go in and ask uh these questions and you know if they got banned it wouldn't really affect their livelihood mm-hmm. you know it wouldn't really affect their job and i i actually i i put that to paul kimmage at um last thursday I, I i pretty much said all of that to him and i asked him like do you have any sympathy for these cycling journalists who maybe didn't ask the tough questions because you know they were they were thinking of their salary and and their 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 wives and their family you know that they had to think of first maybe above their journalistic integrity and kim kimmage kind of he he said that uh he maybe he could understand why some people are sympathetic but he was certainly not sympathetic because he he just he he said they're journalists first and he said are you you know he basically said are they journalists are they journalists You, you know you have to ask these questions you know and you know he he said you know, recently in the in the uh, towards the end of the Tour of France, Dave Brailsford came into a press conference. Actually, I'm not sure if it was Dave Brailsford. I think it was, but anyway, somebody to do a Team Sky came into the press conference uh, towards the end of the tour when I, I suppose they were getting kind of tired of the doping mm-hmm. questions, um, you know, that were being thrown at Wiggins, and uh, they came into the press conference and they said there'll be no questions about doping today, you know, and. Kimmich said that all it would have taken was just everybody to just stand up, walk out, and go, "Okay, you know, we're not going to write anything about you today. Good luck." And but but it doesn't it doesn't it's not just one person that has to do it. It has to be everybody. It has to be a collective thing. But uh, you know, Kimmich doesn't have sympathy for these guys. Uh, I I do. I think I I do have a little bit of sympathy. You know, I I, I think um I think it was hard for them. Um. And like I, I know on Twitter over the last few days, I don't know whether you've seen um, Lionel Bernie mm-hmm. in particular getting get, get uh, re- reacting to to uh, people c- questioning journalists over the last while, and um, he he um, you know he's defending them, and I, I think there there is for 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 a lot of them, I, I have sympathy. I mean they're the, you know they're not all they haven't all done the same things like Wilcoxon in particular. And uh, I, I, I know I've, I've, I really, I, I can't, um, I don't really respect Brendan Gallagher mm-hmm. that much for, for what he's been, been writing over the last while. And he's kind of ignored um, a lot of what he has written before in what he's mm-hmm. writing now. Uh, unlike Rupert Guinness, who has been excellent, I think. But uh, I, I just think, um, you know, there is a little bit of room for, for uh, sympathy for these guys. We also need to look at the cyclists, of course, because in, in your piece, um, there's, there's Stephen Roach. Talking, talking, Kimmage. Now. Yeah. Now that's a man who worked with Luigi Ciccini, and that's a name that I think is a thread that we might follow through today's show. Actually, is Ciccini. Um, 
it, it's just, it's a murder writ large. And it's left me a, a man who I used to revere. The more I find out, and I've, the more I find out about lots of people and the response to what's happened this week, the, you know, the further my heroes are falling. It's just disgusting behaviour. Yeah, it, it, it was like, I, I'd never seen that quote before from Roach saying, um, you know, it's nobody's business but my own if I've got amphetamines in my body. You know, that's, my, my, you know, especially in the, in, in the current climate of, of, of the doping uh, scenario, you know, saying stuff like that is, is uh, like I know he didn't say it recently, he said it 20 years ago, but um, it's crazy, you know, and, and it really, it's, it's, um, you, you know, it's the, it's the comments of a, of a, of a man with something to hide. Well, the you case know, in, in the early 90s against, or was it the early 2000s, I can't remember, against Ciccini in the Italian court, you know, there were, in, the, in the diaries there were, certainly in 93 Roach was using EPO, you know, the, the diaries showed the, the dosages and the timings and that sort of thing, so he's part of this problem, you know, he's not part of the solution. Yeah, and and like I, I saw Nicholas Roach on television, um, he was on a show called Primetime on RTE last Friday, and um, he was asked, you know, the, the pretty tough questions. And, you know, he was asked about his own his own dad. Uh, and the question was put to him, you know, you know, wasn't Steve Roach um, caught dealing with this dodgy doctor? And, you know, they're very hard questions to answer for a son on live television. And um, it, it, it was, uh, you know, I, I like... You've, Roach, got to, you've, you've got to feel sorry for that, though, being asked that kind of question about your own dad. Yeah, it's very difficult. But, I mean, Roach hasn't helped himself. You know, Roach has put himself in a very awkward position by signing for Bjarne Reese and now riding with Alberto Contador, you know, as if as if the Busada problems weren't enough. You know, he, he's he's uh, he, he's put himself in this position where he is going to be asked these questions, and rightly so, and he isn't answering them very well. You know, he doesn't really fill you with confidence after you've heard him speak. He, he's not... He's evading the questions, really, and he, he's... Um, I don't think he's also. I don't think he's helped by the fact that clearly English isn't his first language. It's yeah. you know his first language is French, and I, I I think sometimes he struggles to get his his actual point across, and he struggles for the right words. But uh, you know he he's um uh I I I kind of feel sorry for him a little bit. Uh, he he's uh, he doesn't he, ha- he he didn't come across well anyway, and it's not the first time he hasn't come across well. But I, I was thinking about this, you know, the different reactions that writers have given and if you compare say you know Fabian Cancellara kind of came out and, and gave a, a fairly scathing message that you know this is ridiculous and you know the first couple of years of my career are you know are worthless now and uh, you know there may, there may have been some slightly self-serving reasons behind him saying that because he didn't want to work with Brunel anymore but but you know if you, if you compare that that type of reaction with you know uh, Alex Dowsett was the with the kind of um the particular one that people latched onto that was you know this stuff doesn't matter anymore and, yeah. and all that you know which was you know it was disappointing you know but as fans I think that we you know obviously we want to hear all riders come out and say and and, and say pretty much the same thing that you, you know this is you know to, to be disgusted by this you, you know and to to send a clear message that you know I am I am the vehicle for change and it is changing and I'm disgusted by what happened in the past, but you can believe in this sport, you know, something along those lines. But I, I you know, I was, I was thinking about this and trying to put it into context of, of something that might happen in my own life. And if you imagine, say, a burglar that's been stealing from houses around your neighborhood mm-hmm. and, and, and one day they catch the burglar and they know who it is. 
And, you know, some people uh, mightn't have been robbed. So their reaction might be to just shrug and say, okay, well, I don't really care. It didn't affect me. Uh, some people may have been robbed and you know there there could be different degrees of the damage done to their house it, you know the burglar could have smashed the window and just stolen the cash from your sock drawer or he could have come in ransacked the place set fire to the garage and you know shat on your pillow or something like that you know nice classy <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, I, I don't know where you get those types of burglars in scotland but, uh, <laughs> but you know there's different degrees of 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 the damage that they could have done to you and then there are people that knew the burglar, you know, there's people that when the burglar's identity is revealed by the police, you're like, God, I knew that guy, you know, and the different degrees of reaction depends on all those things. And maybe you knew the guy and the guy is a rich kid who's obnoxious and you don't you didn't like him anyway. But maybe you knew the guy and you know that his mom's an alcoholic and his dad's in jail and he's struggling through life and he's got two kids to feed and, you know, he, he, he was just the guy that came in, smashed the window and took the cash. You know, maybe you'd feel sorry for him. You know, so so there, there there's just a whole pile of different people that are reacting to this who are coming to it from different angles. And they're not all the same. They don't all have the same experiences and have all, they haven't all been affected the same way by this. And, you know, even as fans, we'd like to think that they'd all react strongly and in the same sort of have the same sort of reaction they're not you know that's not going to happen mm-hmm. and uh, i i think that you know as fans we should take a step back and 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 think you know what, what what is this guy's background and you know how does this actually affect him and why is he saying these things you know yeah i mean actually judge judge where they're coming from as opposed to just the bold facts of what they're saying yeah absolutely yeah anyway um i think we we can fairly say we both got a bit heated about that one so uh <laughs> So let's move on to another cheery chappy, uh, a piece about uh, Evgeny Berson, who's, for me, actually, he's the poster child of EPO use. So here you go. In 1997, Evgeny Berzan failed miserably in an attempt to break the world hour record. Berzan formed part of a plethora of Russians who infiltrated the European racing scene in the early 90s. His contemporaries were the likes of Dmitry Konyshev, Vladimir Pulnikov and Vyacheslav Ekimov. Berzan cut his teeth on the track where he won rainbow jerseys and achieved various podium places at junior and amateur level in both the individual pursuit and the team pursuit. In 1990, he was ready to move to the professional ranks, but this was put on hold for a further two years so he could compete at the Barcelona Olympics in 92. He eventually turned pro in 93, but it wasn't until 1994 that he began to win, and in spectacular fashion. He became the first rider since the very first edition to win Liège-Bastogne-Liège at the first attempt and he followed this up with overall victory at the Giro d'Italia. He achieved these victories as part of the Gowis Balan team. Also in 1994, he made up part of the now infamous trio of Gowis riders, along with Giorgio Furlan and eventual winner Moreno Argentan, who simply rode away from the peloton in flesh volon and filled the podium places. With excellent ability against the clock and decent climbing legs, Burzan was lauded as the rider who could possibly knock Miguel Indurain off his perch. But in his tour debut in 1995, Berzan fell ill and abandoned on stage 10 to Abduez. The following year, when Indrain was at his most vulnerable, Berzan again looked to be the one who could take over as the winner of the Tour de France. He started off well too, taking over the yellow jersey after stage 7 and rubber stamping his lead by taking victory in the time trial the following day. But it was downhill from there, as former teammate Bjarne Rees began inexplicably dancing up Hoare category mountains. 
Burzan managed to stay in the top three overall until stage 15, where he began to lose minutes on the climbs. On stage 17 to Pamplona, he lost a whopping half an hour and he ended the tour in 20th place. In 1997 though, despite abandoning the Tour de France again, Burzan felt it appropriate to attack the hour record, which was then held by Chris Borden. Burzan prepared for his attempt, which was held on a track in Bordeaux, but he fell miserably short. Boardman's record was 56.37 kilometers. Burzan decided to abandon the attempt after just 17 minutes, as he was averaging just under 52 kilometers per hour. So, Evgeny Burzan, you seen him lately? <laughs> I actually have. Yeah. So, I saw, <laughs> some, somebody put up a, a picture on Twitter. Jesus, he's, he hasn't aged well. Um, he's uh, he's fond of a few a few dinners, I'd say. Well, I, you know, I can't criticise that. I'm, uh, I'm pretty much in the same boat myself, mate. Yeah. Um, I saw a great quote from Pantani as well. Back in back in, in when Burzan was winning races, uh, Pantani was asked what he thought of him, and he obviously didn't think much of him as a rider, as a person. And he said, "The only thing I envy him for is his hair." <laughs> and yeah, yeah, he did have great hair. Um, he was one of the, as you said, the trio who really marked the onset of the EPO era in that flesh alone, um, and. You know, winning Liège Baston Liège first time, uh, winner of the Giro. I think, I mean, he was a bit like Ulrich for me. I expected him to be a really dominant force in the sport, and he just kind of fizzled out. He, he did, yeah. And I, I tried to kind of track down a few articles on on why why that happened, and I couldn't really find anything. And I, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I said in the piece. Oh no, sorry, I didn't say in the piece. I have a quote here. Actually, I might just say it to you. Um, it's uh it's by uh Michele Ferrari funnily enough because he, he he was his he was his trainer or he was his doctor and uh you know like again um like I know the, the pieces this week are, are all about doping it's obviously been on my mind consciously or unconsciously but so I I don't know whether I should apologize for that or not but anyway so M- M- Michele Ferrari like I mean if you look back at all his clients I mean we can't but assume that all of them were being doped by McKay Ferrari. You know, why else would you use this guy? But anyway, uh, Ferrari said about Burzan at the time, he said, I can tell you he is a big, big talent. The biggest talent I've ever come across. I have worked with Bunyo, Chiapucci, Moser, Rominger and Argentan and I tested Indrain in the early 90s and Burzan is the best of them all. In all the tests we run, VO2 and, and, and anaerobic threshold, Burzan was the best. The problem may be his head, because he is Russian and money is going to be thrown at him, and this could be a problem for someone who is only 24. So I, I, I mean, I don't know whether that's actually why he, he kind of he fizzled out in the end was that he just I don't know the fame and the money just got too much, or and, and he, he just couldn't couldn't be arsed putting the hours of training in anymore. I, I don't know, but uh, he he certainly did fizzle out and he didn't um, fulfil uh, the potential that he clearly had, doped or, or otherwise. No, I think that's exactly it. I mean, we've seen quite often people from, you know, the poorer countries, once they hit the top, and actually, you know, you could almost include Ulrich and he's eating the pies in the winter thing in this. Um, you know, once they've got what they were aiming to get, once they've escaped the, you know, the trap of poverty or the trap of Eastern Europe or whatever, uh, you know, the, the hunger's not there anymore. And I think that's probably what happened with Berzin. I think you're right, though. I think there are doctors, you know, Ferrari, Conconi, Ciccini, we can say if people went there, it wasn't for training plans, yeah. or at least it wasn't only for training plans. I, I, um, I saw somebody say on Twitter, I actually think it might have been Owen P. He said, uh, it's like uh, reading Playboy for the articles or, or going to a strip club for the salad bar. You know, it's just, <laughs> you, you just don't do it. You know, if you want a doctor, don't use that doctor. Why are you using that doctor? And that's something very much that 
came across again in the conversation with Paul Kimmage was, you know, first and foremost, you should judge a rider by who he surrounds himself by. And, and you, you know, I, I think that's that's clearly um, something that has come out of this USADA report that, uh, you know, just why, why, there's no other reason to use this guy than because he's doping riders. You know, there's, yeah. there's no other reason. An interesting uh, side point on, you know, you talk about him losing the jersey to, to Bjarne Rees. Yeah. is apparently he's the person who's held the yellow jersey for the least distance on the ground because he only actually wore yellow in that tour for 46 kilometres. Is that true? He... Apparently so, aye. So in the entire history of the tour, Evgeny Berzin, in terms of distance measured by kilometres, is the, the shortest holder of the yellow jersey. Wow, wow. I didn't know well, that. Wow, I've out-tripped yeah, I, just... I think it's a first. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'll, I'll be... I'll be, uh, be... I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll have to check that out, John, and uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll try and prove you wrong. <laughs> just, well, just... Like, no. let me have my moment. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> now the other thing that he did notably was um, attempt my personal fascination, the hour record. Yeah, uh, and he was he was rubbish. He was he was really bad. Although I, I um I think I just haven't read another couple of articles that that was actually written into his contract to that he he was to attempt this, you know, and when when he signed his latest contract that. Uh, he was required to do it, so maybe he wasn't uh, prepared um, <laughs> a, a, as well as he he should have been, and um, uh, you know his heart wasn't in it, and he was just doing it because he was obliged to do it. I, I, I'd say there was a little bit of of that. He obviously he clearly wasn't ready for it, but uh, I I I've just put a question mark in the notes as well. I, you you know a lot about more about the hour record than I do, but I I'm not sure whether he was actually the last maybe the last big road rider to actually seriously attempt the hour record. Would that be would that be right? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's completely right. I think it marked the swan song, uh, you know, the fascination that we had in the 90s with the hour record. Um, and, you know, one of the things we talked before about Brad Wiggins going for the hour record, um, I, think, I think it's ripe for a relaunch, actually, because... It it was one of my favourite periods in sport because there were you know there were a few years with Rominger with Inderain, you know with Boardman and of course Graham Abri where it was just fascinating to follow it and I, you know, I kind of want that back again. Yeah, I I was thinking about it some more and I know it said last week that you know if Bradley Wiggins went for it, I mean he's clearly the type of rider that could do it with his track background and uh, you know put it live on Sky. But wouldn't it be brilliant if say Wiggins and Cancellara did it at the same time? If they both started at exactly the same time, you know, Wiggins in London, Cancellara in in Switzerland or Italy or somewhere, and they were, you know, they were both televised side by side, and they were both going for it. I mean, there's just there was big opportunity there to to market this, and uh, that would be awesome. I mean, let's let's form a company and and do that to them. That would be brilliant. Yeah, like I mean, it is like lots of people have said about the suggestion that Wiggins. To, to go for the air record, ah, you know, nobody cares about it anymore. But you know, really, something like that could really captivate people, and uh, it would be, it would be fantastic. But uh, another th- another question I have in the notes as well, which maybe you know the answer to is uh, um, Boardman. That that record that I said in in the in the piece that was done by Boardman with the Superman position, and mm-hmm. I actually I, I I have a feeling that the position was actually banned since that, and. Burzin's attempt was after the Superman position was banned, but before they reset the record. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's completely right. Um, and I mean, that's one of the things that annoys me as well, is I'd like to see an unlimited record being the most prestigious one. Uh, because, I mean, that pushes the development of technology within the sport with, it, with a trickle-down effect. And frankly, 
I want to see people go as bloody fast as they can. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, obviously that was the big thing with with Aubrey and his battle with the UCI was that he was, you know, became more and more about the technology. But like you say, that's as interesting as anything. Yeah, I mean, fascinating. Now let's move on to (laughs) another rather sorry story within the sport, Um, and this is. a British team which had some success in the Giro d'Italia, but was was ultimately a bit of a farce. The tale of Linda McCartney. In 1999, Max Schiandri signed for the Linda McCartney team. The Linda McCartney team was started by a motocross rider called Julian Clark. He wasn't a racing cyclist, but he simply had an idea to create a British team made up of vegetarians who had aimed to compete in the Tour de France. He convinced the Linda McCartney brand of vegetarian food to sponsor them in late 1997. And in 1998, he had the money and the freedom to run his own professional cycling team. With a roster of just six riders in 98, they mostly competed domestically, with their only win coming in the Tom Simpson Memorial Race. At the end of 98, they convinced Sean Yates to join as director sportif. Yates had been holding on for an invite to be a director sportif for Lance Armstrong's new US Postal team, but was perturbed by the fact that Steve Bauer was offered the role first, so he joined the Linda McCartney team instead. For the 1999 season, they bolstered their roster with the likes of Chris Newton, Chris Lillyhoyt and Russell Downing. They became much more competitive and also began racing abroad in races like the Jayco Bay Crit Series and the Tour de Langkawie. But they were still missing the marquee signing they felt they needed to achieve invites to the Grand Tours. In Max Skiandri, they felt they had their man. Skiandri had won a stage of the Tour de France and several stages of the Giro d'Italia as well as nabbing an Olympic bronze medal in the road race in Atlanta. For the past three years, he had been riding for the French Francaise de Jeu team, where he had managed just two wins. The only other top British pros competing at the time were David Miller and Chris Boardman. The signing of Skiandri was big news for the fledgling British team. They also signed Pascal Richard, the veteran Swiss rider and former Olympic champion. Although the team were invited to the Giro in the year 2000 and sensationally won a stage through David McKenzie, the wins never really materialised for Skiandri although he did win the Giro del Lazio and a stage of the Rapport Tour. Skiandri had signed on again for the 2001 season, along with Irish star Mark Scanlon and handy track rider Bradley Wiggins. But that's where it all fell apart for Julian Clark and the Linda McCartney team. He thought he had sponsors for the year through Jacobs Creek and Jaguar, but Jacobs Creek only wanted to sponsor them for the duration of the Tour Down Under, and the Jaguar opportunity turned out to be a hoax. With riders still owed parts of their salaries from the previous year and no money forthcoming, the team collapsed and disbanded at the end of January 2001. So, I mean, looking back at their philosophy, Linda McCartney were really a kind of proto-sky, weren't they? Yeah, very much so. And it's only when when I I came to read up about this story for for this piece that uh, it really becomes apparent how similar they they actually tried to be. And, um, you know... uh, I, I don't think it's a coincidence, but, but uh, most of the stuff I, I, I got for this is from a book called Team on the Run, which is worth a read. It's 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 interesting. But um, in it, they say that, uh, you know, they went so far as to, they got Paul McCartney to write this uh, track called Clean Machine, which 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 took mm-hmm. samples from Penny Lane. And, and this was their anthem, you know, and, and they, you know, they were, they were really kind of tried to be seen to be anti-doping as well as vegetarian and this really really just clean team and it really came to to bite them in the arse when <laughs> when they 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 hired neil stevens who was um an australian director sportif who um it still is and um he he uh 
he was involved in the Festina affair in 1998. He was on the Festina team, and he had admitted at that stage. I, I, I'm pretty sure at that stage he had already admitted to the police that he had taken EPO. Maybe he admitted that uh, a la Veronque in that he didn't know he was taking EPO or something like that. But he, he anyway, he was embroiled in this controversy, and um, they hired him. And then it, it, it was as if they hired him, and they weren't aware of this. And then they suddenly became aware and they were like, oh, shite, you know, maybe we should get rid of this guy and or maybe we shouldn't and what we do. And it, it actually got to the point where the PR guy for the team had written, he had drafted two releases because he wasn't sure what the team were going to do. He had written the, no, 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 we back him, we're, we're going to keep him on. And he had also written the, we fired him, but we support him. You know, he had written both. But uh, in the end, they kept him on and, and, and they backed him. But it really, I mean, it's it's kind of incredible, the parallels that are coming out now with Team Sky and, and you know, particularly Sean Yates. And, you know, he, he was obviously on, on Motorola and he was involved in Lance Armstrong's teams. And, um, you know, and, and they're going to have to do the same thing. And it probably wouldn't be surprising if right now the PR guy on Team Sky has written two press releases and he's ready to release yeah. one or the other because he doesn't know yet. And uh, it, it's it's actually amazing that they're making these same mistakes, and it just it, it really really highlights how uh, unsustainable and kind of stupid Team Sky's uh, philosophy is, and that they try to be just this completely clean team, and it's unbelievably uh, I, I don't know what the word is naive is a little bit mild I think, but uh, you know that that you know you know that they had these guys Michael Barry and Sean Yates and and they. It's just it's so different from the the philosophy of Jonathan Waters, who who accepts that this happened. You know, he doesn't try and brush mm-hmm. everything under the rug and say, "Oh, we didn't know, we didn't know." You know, he's accepting that there was problems. He knows his riders have done this in the past, but now, right now, on this team, we are clean, and and that's all you can ask for. You know, you can't yeah. ask to erase the past. And Team Sky seem to maybe not erasing it, but ignoring it is very very. Uh, that that's really what they want to do is to just ignore this and and now more than ever they can't and now they're backed into a corner and they've already sacked Gert Lenders the Rabobank doctor who mm-hmm. was doping riders on Rabobank and you, you know maybe they should have kept him on because that would have that would have sent a message that you know we hired this guy for a reason and this is the reason and he, he here's here's why we hired him here's who hired him and and uh, you know we're keeping him for this reason. But instead, they've gotten rid of him, which only goes to sh- to kind of highlight, yeah, there was a problem with that guy, and 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 now we've yeah. we've gotten rid of that problem. But you know, that we shouldn't have done that, and and you know, they're they're kind of they're really really, uh, it's a disaster for them. It's a it's a real disaster, and uh, it's I think it's only going to get worse. I think they're going to have to do something about Sean Yates as well, whether they back him publicly or whether they get rid of him. It's going to come to a head, and it's very bad. It's very bad for them. No, completely. I mean, it's. I mean, the Leanders thing was clearly just a, almost a press stunt. You know, they just wanted to to try and move on, but instead, it's just highlighted the problem in the first place. You're exactly right. Now, I said earlier on that Luigi Ciccini was a, a theme in this uh, in this show, and two of the McCartney riders were uh, part of his Atlanta Olympics triumph when all all of the medalists were trained by him, and there was uh, Pascal Richard who. I think he's possibly dirtier than a dirty thing's dirty bits. I mean, he was an incredibly dirty rider. Um, and Max Chiandri was third in those Olympics, and he was also trained by Ciccini, which, you know, we I think we know what inference you and I take from that. Yeah. By the, I mean, by the way, follow him on Twitter. He's hilarious on Twitter, Max Chiandri. Um But 
the whole thing about trying to be clean, it's hard enough now as Team Sky are showing, but then, impossible. I mean, it, it was such a dirty period. I think they were doomed to failure from the yeah, start. Yeah, and, and I, I just have a quote here, actually, that I'll say. It's just uh, very Team Sky-esque. It says... Um, we were acutely aware that the worst thing that could happen to the team was a positive dope test. We would probably be better off never winning a race than having that happen. As a result, newcomers to the team had to be carefully vetted for past misdemeanors and made aware of their responsibilities. You know, and Team Sky have said that they tried to vet people for past misdemeanors and that Michael Barry lied to them. And and that, and you know now it's come out. I, I I personally find that hard to believe. But you know, going back to the Linda McCartney team, uh, like Pascal Richard. Uh, the team, the Linda McCartney team doctor, I don't know whether he's the team doctor or the team coach, or anyway, some member of the team, uh, he found a product in pa- that Pascal Richard had in, a, in a, his hotel room during the Giro in the year 2000. And, uh, you know, he grabbed it, and the quote in the book says, Jesus Christ, Pascal, how long have you been taking this shit? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, Richard looked up and goes, you know, real innocent, going, oh, no, it's fine. You know, the guy who gave it, gave it to me told me it was fine. And, uh, you know, clearly wasn't. It was this muscle-building powder that, that, you know, it was banned. And uh, he had give, he had actually also given it to this young guy on the team called Ben Brooks. And the pair of them, um, they had to leave the Giro d'Italia after the prologue. All they were, the road was the prologue. They left before stage one. And at the time, you know, it was just, it was only reported that, you know, the usual, they had flu or, or you know, fever and, and, and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, that that was the real reason that they left because they didn't want to test positive in, in, in the race. And, you know, when you when you read things like that in hindsight and you look at Team Sky's strategy now, you'd wonder how much of that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know just to maintain the facade and the perception of a clean team. Because that really that's all Dave Brailsford seems interested in is the perception. And he really still hasn't gotten across that it's not just the perception. It's it's actually this is what we're doing. And that's the battle he's facing now. And at the moment, I think he's losing. Yeah, I mean, what he needs to do is have the meeting at Manchester Velodrome that he promised us all during the tour. Yeah. Uh, you know, where he goes through everything in detail and, you know, just lays everything out completely openly and transparently. And if he follows through on that, then he'll have my respect. And, you know, I'll be there asking questions. Yeah, and, and uh, maybe one more thing we should say about uh, about the Linda McCartney fiasco is it's just like the the... I kind of brushed through it at the end of the piece, but I mean, they're, they're, uh, they fell apart because of financial reasons. It had nothing to do with doping in the end, at least not publicly. It didn't have anything to do with doping. I don't know, maybe behind the scenes it did, but I don't think it did. It was just purely financial. They couldn't get the money. And it just goes to show how delicate and fragile that teams can be apart from any doping problems. You know, and it, 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 you know, cycling still has many problems that aren't to do with any sort of drugs. And, and, uh, you know the 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 way the teams are set up now, the model that that they're sponsored and and you know there's no there's no kind of uh, franchise to to use the American term that uh, you, you know Walters has tried to address this and I I don't know whether he, his suggestions are viable or 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 good but you know he he thinks that it needs to change and it you know I I think he is kind of right because. It, it, it is very fragile the whole system and you know one it, essentially one guy can just decide not don't want to sponsor the team anymore and you know 50 people are looking for a job and it's yeah completely. It, it, it's it's uh you know again quite apart from any doping problems cycling has many many problems and it's not just doping 
I think to be fair to you know the general fragility, um, is it Julian Clark who was the the guy who was the kind of overlord of the McCartney team? Uh, he played pretty fast and loose with money. I mean, he seems a bit of a chancer looking back in retrospect. And I remember reading at the time about the thing and just shaking my yeah. head. Yeah, yeah. But again, I mean, it just shows like uh, you know that's just on the whim of one guy. You know, what, like how can how can the the livelihoods of so many people be be uh, be hanging on one guy's inability to to manage money? You know, it's it's. I mean, that was that's kind of ridiculous as well. You know. Yeah, it's mental. I'd actually, I'd like to finish talking about Team uh, Team McCartney with uh, something that surprised me. I mean, they've become a bit of, um, you know, whipping boys just now, and that's uh, Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin, because of their, you know, unstinting adulation of Lance Armstrong and uh, everything that shines out of his rear end. But during the, the McCartney time, Paul Sherwin was actually the one who asked John Deering, who was the, the press officer, he said, um... Are you sure you've thought through the PR implications of putting somebody so tainted by the Festina thing into the clean machine? <laughs> when he was talking about Neil Stevens, who'd have thought it? Paul Sherwood investigating doping reporter. Oh, shocker, shocker. <laughs> anyway, I, I've got to thank you because um, anybody who follows us on Twitter will have seen the picture of you with your face buried in cocktails last <laughs> night. So um, it's it's a very noble effort to get out, and your voice it, it sounds kind of deep, manly, and husky today, Killian. Good effort. Yeah, I think it's back to bed for me anyway. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening to us. We'll be back next week. I'm uh, at Sofa Boy on Twitter. Killian is at Irish Peloton on Twitter. And we'll be back to regale you with more stories of uh, cycling history next week.